So this is uh, um, our last in this series. We've been doing this series on spiritual warfare where we um, recognize that we are, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what your age is, you can be a child, you can be elderly, uh, you can be a new Christian, you can be a Christian for 50 years, regardless, we are all in this battle, and we are at war, we live in enemy territory. If you thought that, well, when I become a Christian, then, you know, then Satan's going to leave me alone, <laughs> right? It's just like, nope, nope, actually, that's really when the war begins. I mean, it, it's there for all of us throughout our lives, Christian or not, but uh, even more so when we become Christians. And so uh, Paul has then is giving us instructions here as to how to be ready when Satan does come because he always, he typically does battle with us through schemes, trickery, deceit. It's, it's in more subtle and less obvious ways. And so we always need to be on our guard. And so the, uh, the armor that Paul uses to kind of illustrate you know, our, our, how we can defend ourselves is on the one hand, it shows how is it. So he uses, you know, the depiction of a, a Roman soldier with all the various different garbs of his armor to demonstrate on the one hand, how Satan attacks us. What are the areas that he attacks us in? And then on the other hand, how are we to defend ourselves? And so we've seen uh, the significance of, uh, of truth, of, of righteousness and our, our identity in Christ. The, um, the shield of faith, and, uh, and also even the, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. And now we come to verses uh, 17 and 18, where it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So here we have, on the one hand, the final piece of protective armor that we have, as uh, soldiers in this war, and then also the only offensive aspect of, uh, of the armor, a, a weapon that we have. So it's referred to as the, uh, so first of all, the, the helmet of salvation, and the helmet would, uh, very important in warfare, right, protect you from, from arrows being shot at you, but even more so to defend yourself against uh, the blows of the broadsword, right, if you, if uh, <laughs> Sword comes down and, and cracks open your skull, you know, the battle is over. So very important to have a good, solid uh, helmet. It's called the helmet of salvation. Now, when we think of salvation, I think typically what we think of is salvation in the terms of, you know, I'm saved. It's something that happened in the past, the forgiveness of sins. But in the New Testament, when it talks about salvation, it's often used in different ways, right? There's salvation... Yep, true enough. In a past sense, forgiveness of sins, right relationship with God, uh, the penalty of sin has been paid for. But salvation is also uh, described in terms of uh, present tense, uh, that we are being freed from and being delivered of, you know, sinful impulses and habits and things like that and, and being sanctified. And then there's a, a future sense of salvation, when we will be freed from the presence of sin, and that's that is, you know, heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, here, it looks like Paul is actually talking about and, and focusing more on that future aspect of our salvation, which of course affects us in the present as well. And one of the clearest ways why we can um, be pretty confident that that's what he's talking about is because he mentions this helmet again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. If you want to turn there, you can see it in the notes. 
Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So he's talking about hope, right? And hope always having to do with the future. Now, hope, in, uh, you know, when, we, when we talk about hope, very often when we think of hope, we think of wishful thinking. Something that's you know, not all that likely, but we hope you know, you know, that the Canucks in my lifetime will win the Stanley Cup. It is a hope. Is it probable? Not likely. But is it a hope? Always. Right? And so that's that hope that keeps you following them year after year after year. But uh, again, they break my heart over and over again. But um, when the New Testament talks about hope, it's not about hope so, but it's about confident expectation. It's a sense of assurance, a, a firm assurance and certainty. So that would be like uh, you PVR'd a, a hockey game or a sport activity or whatever, and you already know the result. You know the, the final you know, score of the game. And so when you're watching it, it's just like, oh, your team is behind by two goals, but you know, you know in the end that they're going to win. And so you're always watching just with this anticipation. I wonder if this is the time when they score that comeback goal or the go-ahead goal or whatever, and you know it's going to happen because you already know the end results, and so therefore you're not anxious uh, as you watch. And, and so it is, that's what more what this hope is talking about, this confidence that we have uh, because of Christ. Now the reality is uh, we, we really can't live without hope. A number of years ago, there was this small town called Flagstaff in, in Maine, and it was, it was to be flooded as a part of a large lake for a dam that was going to be built in the area. And so uh, in the months before, it was to be flooded all in improvements and repairs, and the whole town were stopped, right? Like, well, what was the use of painting or renovating your house if in just six months, right, your house was going to be underwater? Why repair anything when the whole village was going to be wiped out? And so week by week, the whole town became more and more run down, And uh, one observer made this comment as a a way of explanation. He said, where there is no faith in the future, right, hope, there is no power in the present. Right, hope is absolutely essential to a meaningful and happy life, right? We need to know that things are going to get better, that we're doing things, that the things that we're doing them for has a point and there's a purpose for them. Satan and his minions attack hope. Right? He wants us to believe that, you know what, it's pointless, it's, it's purposeless, uh, don't even exert yourself, things are, are, getting, are going to go from bad to worse and worse, nothing will ever change, you're lost, all is lost, there's no deliverance, why even bother sharing the gospel, why bother even trying, it's all pointless. And Satan also attacks us by tempting us to put our hope in something else other than the gospel or other than Christ, right? To put our hope in our strength or in our talents or in our looks or in our job or our money or our marriage or our family or our friendships or our own righteousness. And then when that basis for hope is threatened in some way or it's lost, right? Death of a loved one, 
the end of a relationship, uh, just aging, or sickness, or a debt, or a breakup, or divorce, then we become depressed, and even to the point of despairing, and cynical. And there's no basis for happiness, because there's no basis for hope. And in a war, same thing. If there is no hope in winning, you are either going to flee, or surrender, or kill yourself. Right, Denethor in Lord of the Rings when Gondor is surrounded by enemy forces and he sees it and he just says to his fellow soldiers, he just says, abandon your posts, flee for your lives. And then Gandalf, <laughs> Gandalf knocks him out and says, get ready for battle. But as long as there is hope, then the soldier stands and fights and even in the face of overwhelming odds. Right? If, he, if he hears that more troops are on the way or, or that the commander of the other army, army is killed or captured or whatever. Uh, in the movie uh, Jacob the Liar where Robin Williams plays this Jew in the ghettos of Warsaw uh, in Poland during the yeah, Second World War. And, and, uh, and of course it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, hopeless place and 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 people are committing suicide like daily people are committing suicide but one day in the german headquarters he hears a radio telling where a battle is going on i think he's he's in there like cleaning or whatever and he overhears on the radio on this german radio of the battle that is going on allied forces are getting close they're only in a couple hundred kilometers away and so when he relates this to a friend to keep him from doing something stupid, it becomes assumed that Jacob has this hidden radio. And so then he's pressed to tell them more news. And so, of course, he doesn't have a radio. So he's always making up stories about how the allies are you know, getting closer and winning this battle and winning that battle. And, uh, and as long as there is news, there are no suicides in the ghetto. And they have hope that deliverance is at hand. And of course, that's ultimately what ends up happening. But we need to have hope if we're going to continue on. Now, Paul says this helmet is the hope of salvation. Okay, so again, this isn't about, you know, are you saved? I hope so. It's, that's, not what he's, that's not what he's talking about. But instead, he's talking about a future salvation. A future salvation that affects the past, or sorry, affects the present and our present lives. So if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I say go back to because that's actually uh, the passage that we looked at at the beginning of the service. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, we read this. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's something that happened in the past, right? To obtain an inheritance, so he's now talking about the future, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, present tense, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
So Peter is saying that even though we might be going through various trials and suffering and we're in the middle of the battle, we're in the middle of the war right now, we can still have joy because we have hope because we know how things are going to end. Right? We have this inheritance that is being protected for us, being saved and reserved for us in heaven that one day we will claim. And this hope is anything but wishful thinking since it is based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And since that cannot be undone and that cannot be reversed, our hope is guaranteed. So in other words, just as surely as Jesus rose from the dead, and as we believe in this, we will receive this inheritance. We will receive heaven. And so Jesus is rightly described here as a living hope. We carry with us at all times this living hope that is found in Jesus. Samuel Coleridge once wrote, without, uh, hope without an object cannot live. Right? If you just, it's just like, it, it, again, it's just wishful thinking, but I'm not sure that that hope is not going to continue on. Hope without an object cannot live. But if Jesus really did die for our sins, if he really did rise again from the dead, then yes, we have all the reason in the world to hope. We have a firm foundation for our hope. Or as the writer of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews chapter 6, 17 to 19, he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. This is not wishful thinking. This is something sure and that we can have confidence in. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, But in fact, Christ, because people say, you know, what if, what if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead? Well, then he says, well, then everything that we're doing is in vain and there isn't actually any basis for hope whatsoever. Might as well live and, you know, and, and uh, eat and drink and be merry. You know, tomorrow we die. But he says instead in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of a resurrection that is coming in the end. Right? He's the first of many people that will be raised from the dead when he comes again. And his resurrected body is also the first fruits of the new heaven and earth that is coming. Right? And so in other words, it's because he rose again from the dead, it actually guarantees the new heavens and the new earth. He already is part of that reality. So, so in one sense, Easter is a glimpse of your future. When Jesus rose from the dead, it's just like, this is what you have to look forward to with your glorified body as well. Death undone, death reversed and conquered. Satan will at last be vanquished and banished forever because Jesus has conquered him through his death and resurrection. So then to put on this helmet of salvation is to put your hope in, to think about, hold fast to, and stand upon these Easter realities which results in this future reality and hope of the new heavens and the new earth. So the economy can collapse, I can lose my job, I can go bankrupt, but my hope was never in those things anyways, and all of it will be left behind and rust and burn. But regardless of what happens to me in the here and now, regardless of what happens in this world, I have an inheritance and treasure in heaven waiting for me that never rusts or spoils or fades. 
And it's absolutely guaranteed because Jesus rose from the dead and he is a living hope. So, in other words, we can, and I'm sorry, I've got three references to Lord of the Ringsy stuff. But they're really good because they're, they're, it's full of, that's, that is the dominant theme, by the way, of Lord of the Rings is that of hope. In the last book, Sam the Hobbit is in a place, he's in the evil land, the land of shadow, Mordor. Uh, he and his buddy Frodo are on this quest to destroy the ring. And if they can destroy this evil r- ring of the evil uh, ruler, then... Evil will be broken in the world, but it looks like that just, it just, it looks like it's hopeless and it's not going to happen. And, and it, things are just getting worse and worse. And, and then uh, one, um, one night, Sam looks up into the sky and it says, there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Right? The shadow is the passing thing. There's light and high beauty. That's beyond its reach. And friends, that's how it is for us in this world as well. Right? This is all just passing. The all, no matter all the suffering that's going on, it's, it's a shadow and it's passing. And there's light and there's high beauty that is awaiting for us that can never be touched by this world. So danger, illness, economic collapse, war, divorce, sin, evil, the devil, or even death itself, it doesn't have, none of this has the final say. Jesus has the final say. And Jesus has triumphed and our future is secure. Jesus' resurrection is the reality that will swallow up every other reality. That's the good news of the hope that we have in the gospel. And so there is hope for everyone. There is hope for anything because Jesus died and rose again. If you're not a Christian, what you need to be thinking about is that death is coming. Death is coming. Judgment is coming. And so the question is, what is going to save you? What are you putting your hope in? We all need to be asking that question, right? In the light of death, in the light of judgment, what are you putting your hope in? You're putting your hope in your looks? You're putting hope in in likes on social media? You're putting hopes in your popularity and your reputation? You're putting your hope in your, your money, your marriage, your success, your possessions, your talents, your morality? Can any of that save you? The good news of the gospel is Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died for all of your sins, paying the debt that you owed. And he rose from the dead and he is a living help. Put your hope in him for forgiveness of sins and for everlasting life. I could say amen. And that would be enough, isn't it? But wait a minute, we got one more. We've got one more thing we have to look at, and we're going to look at it very briefly, because we're not finished yet. Because Paul goes on and says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every soldier needs a sword, right? 
Even little Bilbo Baggins needed a sword because he was part of the he was part of the group that was going to defeat the dragon. So even he needed, even though he's a peaceful little creature, even he needed a sword because one day a battle was coming. Now, in one sense, I have been talking about the sword or the word of God all along. Right? Think about, think about the armor again. Think about the armor. Truth. Right? Breastplate of righteousness. The readiness of the gospel of peace. Right? The shield of faith. Hope. The helmet of hope. They are all based upon and held together by the word of God. Right? All of that. We don't, this isn't something what, that we make up. This is something that has been revealed to us in, in God's word. It originates there and it's given to us, comes to us by the Spirit through His Word. And so the Word of God guards us, but it also causes us to be victorious and to actually vanquish the devil. When Satan attacks, we actually have a comeback. That we can we can we can lash out at him in response. And, and of course the, the, the best example we have of that is Jesus himself when he's in the wilderness and Satan comes and tempts him. He says, Well, you're hungry, why don't you take these Take these rocks and turn them into bread, you know, and eat. And then Jesus responds and says, it is written, right? Jesus, and it's amazing, right? Here he is, the Son of God, who possesses all of this power. And yet, what does he do? He uses Scripture. That is the power. And he, he just quotes Scripture to Satan. He says, well, man does not, it is written, man does not live, live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the, of the world. He says, Fall down and worship me and I'll give you all of these. And Jesus responds and says, it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God only and he only shall you serve. He's just quoting scripture back to Satan. So to take the sword of the spirit is to use God's word offensively. To actually inflict pain on and to damage the enemy and to drive him back and drive him away. Tim Keller says, it means, so to, to, to take the sword of the Spirit means to know the Word of God so well and to understand its practical implications so well that you can use it on the spot, right? In the moment of temptation, the temptation to get angry, the temptation to, to uh, give in to lust or gossip or fear or pride or envy. In the moment of temptation, we are to draw the Word of God out and to use it on the spot. And my question to you is, can you do that? Are you able to do that? Do you know how to use the sword? Do you know what the Bible says about these various temptations so that you know how to, just like Jesus. Jesus actually, imagine this, the Son of God actually had to memorize Scripture in order to use it, in this case, against Satan. But do you know what the Bible says about these temptations, right? The Spirit of God doesn't work in your life apart from the Word, right? Those two things go hand in hand. Spirit of God. And it is, and it is the, the, um, the sword of the Spirit. It's not your sword. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So then, obviously, the application on the one hand is know the Word. How do you get to know it? Well, you, obviously, you need to read it or have it read to you. Sit under the teaching of it. Come to understand it. Study it. Become familiar with it. Be instructed by it. Do this on your own. Do it with others. Right? Bible studies and settings like this, right? Learn from one another. 
You can't be passive about it. And then use the Word. Use the Word on yourself and on your own heart. Bring it to mind. Apply it. Live according to it. And then like Jesus, use it to counterattack the attacks of the devil. Alright. So as we conclude, we are in a war. We are in a war. All of us are in a war. And we will be until we die or when Jesus comes again. And so the question is, do you have your armor on? God has given you armor. Do you have it on? Are you wearing it? Are you preaching? In other words, are you preaching the gospel to yourself continually? Because that's really what the armor is. And to put on the armor is, is to really put on Jesus and all that He has attained for us in His life, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. Preach the gospel to yourself. Keep the armor on. And then don't forget that our commander is near at hand and he is always just a prayer away. And he is ready to equip, strengthen you with his might, assuring you of his love and his presence and his victory and your victory. So as verse 18 says, keep praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication being assured that when the day of evil comes you will stand amen let's pray together